people are watching. That is a warning to not let your kids end up on the magic island. I knew it all along. Advice on how to masturbate less. It tickles the imagination. God is a supercomputer. Is this bullshit? Welcome to the Irrational Discourse Podcast, part two of our sci-fi science episode. We previously left off at the conclusion of our discussion on Star Wars. In this episode, we're going to jump into the dated yet more plausible science of Star Trek, leading us to one of the more scientifically realistic shows that Chris and I have seen, The Expanse. So, put on your geek hat, fire up your brain, and let's begin. So Star Trek was the next one, and you know the, the original producer of, of the series was Gene Roddenberry, and he was connected to Star Trek all the way until his death in 1991. And he had a really good understanding of, uh, of astronomy, and had a really healthy respect of science. So he wanted to try to get a lot of things right, you know, as much as possible. Yeah. So you know, we'll just jump right into that. So the communicators. Mm-hmm. So I kind of rank these in the order of um, most plausible to least plausible. Okay. So number one was communicators, which was the most plausible piece of science fiction in the show. And I, I can say that primarily because the, the first mobile phones appeared in the market and or the first flip phones appeared in the market in 1996. So 30 years after the show went out, they actually had uh, the, the first flip phone. Now, Martin Cooper, um, this is seven years later, 1973. He was, he was the lead of a team at Motorola that developed the first handheld mobile phone, the first cell phone. Cool. And he, his inspiration came from Captain Kirk. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so Star Trek actually influenced the invention of, of mobile phones. Wow. So we can all thank Captain Kirk and, you know, his flipping up the... And Gene Roddenberry. Scotty Rod- me up. And Gene, Gene Roddenberry deserves Roddenberry. all the there credit in the world. <laughs> One of the interesting stories of that, I saw an interview with William Shatner, and he was talking to a group of people and said that when the flip phones first came out in 1996, they gave him one for free. And they gave it to him out of a, uh, just as an appreciation of the influence he had in the, in the, with the Star Trek crew and the development of the, uh, the cell phones. So he, he was telling the story that he was, an airport, he was in an airport, I think it was in Canada, but he was trying to figure out this flip phone and he was trying to flip the cover up and it was being stubborn. He said it took him a couple times to, to finally get it to flip up and it flipped up and he was dialing the number and he was kind of holding it up close to his face so he could see the numbers while he's doing it. And he kind of looked up, and a crowd had formed around him. Oh, wow. And they were all pointing and laughing. And he said his first reaction was, what the hell are you people looking at? Why are you all laughing? (laughs) He said, and then all of a sudden, the full ramification of the situation kind of dawned on him, and he had to just stand there and laugh with him. (laughs) Here's here's Captain Kirk in an airport in in Montreal or something with a a communicator trying to flip it up to (laughs) call Scotty. (laughs) And everyone's like, oh, my God, he's off his meds. <laughs> <laughs> and if it would have been one of the early flip phones, nobody would have known what it was. Exactly. It, would have, it would have looked just like a, he's got a communicator from, yeah. <laughs> from the set of Star Trek. Uh, the ne- wild. <laughs> the, <laughs> the next one on the list was the ship's computer. Oh, yeah, okay. So, of course, the computers that we have today, you know, even you know, 50 years later, five decades later, are far more advanced than what they had on the show. But... The show was very visionary in depicting on how computers would be used in real-world situations, including the military or space exploration. Yeah, um, doing massive calculations, uh, extrapolating data. 
voice communications. I mean, we're just now starting to talk to you know our our Alexa and Siri, and yeah. Even though the funny thing is about that is the only two people in the house that Siri or Alexa will recognize is you or me. It doesn't rec- recognize any of the women in the house. It's true. It's like something in the bass tones. It picks that up better. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the racist hand washers? I have. The racist, no, they're, they're not hand washers, the racist sinks. Yeah, the ones that uh, their their infrared signal doesn't pick up the, like, darker skin tones. Yeah, so when they first start coming out, you know, with the, with the sinks where you wave your hand in front of them at a, you know, at an airport or wherever, and you, you know, the, the contactless sinks, and the water comes out because it detects the presence of your hand. First ones that they came out with and started putting in the, into the market, they didn't work for African Americans. That's so weird. Because, and then they went back and found out why, and it's because the stupid fuckers that did all of the testing just used nothing but white dudes to, to do the test. Yeah, I gotcha. <laughs> it was a complete failure of imagination. Now, whether there was any implicit bias in that decision to only use white people is, that's a completely different question, but they didn't think that went through. Yeah. Weird. The, um, now I'm way off on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. So, yeah, the the Star Trek computers. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is, is I you know they they were very visionary and you know depicting how that you know the future and the use of computers and you know blah blah blah. And they even had computers that were, even though they were very large in the show, they were very small compared to real real world computers at the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of the computers would take up entire office buildings just to do the kind of comp- computations that they were showing in the show. Mm-hmm. So the irony about that is 700 years or several hundred years, so like 300 years from now, when we in real world time catch up to the fictional time of Star Trek, Mm -hmm. it's beyond imagination what our computers will be able to do at that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, with like new quantum computing capabilities, being able to transcribe astronomical amounts of information, but in the size of, you know, a, a microchip and it all happens off of tiny magnetic currents or something like that that's what they're working on right now yes yeah yeah. (laughs) or our entire civilization is nothing but artificial intelligence sure yeah if we haven't completely wiped ourselves out of existence by then well may that not be the case (laughs) (laughs) that's not the case (laughs) well so what else you got here i got a piece of trivia to go with that okay did you ever, have you seen any of the, uh, actually it was this on Star Trek Discovery and on the original series on any of the episodes? Have you seen any of the original ones? No, so I mean, uh, I've seen uh, most of Next Generation, uh, some of Voyager. All right, dude, you and I but, are going to yeah. binge watch the old series one time. Okay, cool. Yeah, we got to watch it. <laughs> yes. You got to see Captain Kirk, especially the fight scenes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Put them up. <laughs> so the computer voice, so they would talk to the computer. Okay. And that was, you know, the, the computer was vocal and, you know, that does not compute. You uh, know, those, yes. <laughs> those kind of things. The computer's voice was um, done by, and I'm going to butcher her first name. It was, uh, I think it was uh, Michelle Barrett. Okay. Was was her name. And she had also played in the episodes as Nurse Christine Chapel. Mm, okay. Interestingly enough, a year after the show was canceled around 1968, her and Gene Roddenberry married. Wow. And she was heavily involved in Star Trek productions for the following movies that ensued. She was also the, the voice of the computer on Star Trek Discovery. Cool. Decades later. And has been Gene Roddenberry. They were married until he died in 1991. 
And, you know, she continued on with the Star Trek, uh, with her Star Trek legacy after that. And she's considered by everybody basically in Hollywood, especially related to the show, as the, as the first lady of Star Trek. Oh, wow. That's sweet. Uh, matter, antimatter generation. Mm, yeah, that's, that's how the, uh, the ships function, right? That's their power source. Yeah, so there was, I mean, besides dilithium crystals, but yeah, there was mat- matter, antimatter, uh, an antimatter core or something along that, those lines. Yeah. So this, this predates, you know, our technology by decades, but, you know, today, you know, we as a species, or science, has developed um, antimatter in very microscopic amounts. Mm-hmm. It, so, so the whole antimatter, matter, antimatter drives is very plausible, in decades before its time. Of course, even in the show, they recognize the fact that antimatter had to be contained because if antimatter comes into contact with matter, then it's antimatter, you know, boom, there's big explosion, bad things happen to everybody within, you know, a certain proximity. Uh, So, you know, they, they, they got that. So yeah, it's, it is a very plausible technology. Hmm. We just haven't even, we haven't got there yet. Just barely scratched the surface of the surface. Yeah. And then there were impulse engines. Impulse engines. Yeah, so um, impulse engines were basically it was engines based on a, a fusion 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 reaction, which which are in the bounds of reality, but we haven't got there yet. Okay. So again, the science was accurate. We just don't have the technology today. Uh, but they also mentioned ion drives. Ion drives. And ion drives were again you're you're ionizing xenon mm. gas and you're converting that in plasma to be used as a power source for the aircraft there's some stuff that i that pops up on like my ifl science feed or something like that about microwave emitters they're like space drives that i mean again it's another one of these like scratching the surface of the surface of the surface mm. kind of thing but they're plausible drives for that create propulsion by emitting microwaves I don't know how it works. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that would work, but ion drives do work. Yeah, and in fact, NASA in 1997 did its um, Deep Space One mm. mission, mm-hmm. and it was the first spacecraft uh, in the world to utilize ion drives for propulsion. Hmm. So again, that was 30 years before the show ended. Yeah, and maybe that's what I'm thinking of too, though. So it like would release one ion particle, and then that's I have no idea what would create would the propulsion. Yeah. yeah. I have no idea how, but, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of along the lines of lightsabers and blasters. When you when you strip electrons away from a gas, mm-hmm. you create plasma. And then how to utilize that plasma? You know, NASA did it with their ion drives. Yeah, I see. Yeah, because I'm thinking of like, you know, when you're in space, you know, if you if you need to move in a direction, how you can throw something. And that, by, by throwing something, that creates like the, there's like a reverse effect where when something... When two objects like leave each, or you're getting into, I, I'm you're not getting a into physicist, new, so no, you're like, getting into Newtonian laws. So it is Newtonian laws. Conservation of okay. momentum and yeah, you know, equal and opposite reaction. That if something is ejected at an equivalent force, then yeah. whatever ejected it is propelled in the opposite direction. At exactly. An force. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that still relevant? Oh, very relevant. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Newton's laws still apply. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Androids. Androids. All right. <laughs> I didn't go into them a lot because, you know, basically we don't have the technology today to do artificial intelligence or even full-blown androids, but physicists, engineers, and neurologists all think it's possible. We just, we have a lot of learning to do. Yeah. 
how to how to create our own C3PO or uh, data or data. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and uh, and even on data, he had a wasn't a, was it a positronic drive or a positive? I can't remember that he you know referenced his type of circuit that he had. And I don't think it based on my. I watched Next Generation a long time ago when it was was still running, and I don't remember I don't remember a lot of it. But you know, apparently he still had limitations on what he could learn because he had never fully achieved consciousness. Mm-hmm. Now I think there were episodes where they judged that as to whether he was conscious or not. They did a lot of those episodes, yeah. Um, and he had a his creator created um, Lore, who was his twin brother but I had remember an, his tw- yes. yeah but had an opposite personality he he wasn't analytical like data he was totally emotion driven i mean i guess you could put it that way he, he was different anyway <laughs> so yeah so we we have i mean that one's plausible but you know we're a long way away from completely mapping the hero, human brain we we discussed consciousness uh, several episodes back and you know we don't even know what consciousness is yet or you know what's the originator of consciousness is it panpsychism is it materialism we don't you know we don't know yeah i don't know man is it all of it at once <laughs> cloaking devices was interesting you know the klingon mm. cloaking mm. device was always an awesome defense mechanism that they could utilize. Yeah, I mean, it was coveted even in Star Trek, that technology, only they had it. (laughs) Yeah, and and the military, obviously, is working on similar technology today. And we saw cloaking devices again, I just thought of this, in um, The Predator. The Predator, yes. That That was awesome. And they also got it right where, you know, as the Predator would, if he was perfectly still, you wouldn't be able to see him. But if he moved. But if he shifted, you would kind of see that, visual incontinuity yeah it, with the technology trying to keep up and i think the, the premise behind that was sensors in the front would detect the frequency of light coming in and then they would reproject that light out at the same angle yeah so from you know the, the perspective of the, of the person that's witnessing it they would see whatever was behind it or sensors in the back i apologize sensors in the back would detect the frequency of light and they would project that out the front yeah, through like little micro LEDs or something. Yeah, something along those lines. And they've the military today has run experiments where they've been able to do that with very small objects. Oh, cool. So that you know, whoa. <laughs> but you know, the amount of energy, the speed of computation, everything to where you know, getting that to work on a larger object that's moving. Mm. Yeah, we're still. I don't know if we'll ever be able to make anything truly invisible like that. You know, it would. You know, how fast can the computer calculate what's coming in, project it out the front with the angles and blah, 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 yeah. so that it's completely transparent. It would, you know, it would basically look like a warped field of light moving through, you know, the environment in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. maybe they can find another method. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we'll get there one day. Yeah. And again, you have to have the, the energy source to power the the suit or the armor or whatever it is. And, and all the computers that are doing all those computations. Yeah. yeah. And similar to the to the blaster in Star Wars, you got the phaser in Star Trek. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah. Set for stun or kill. Yeah, <laughs> so stun or kill or some kind of knob in between. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How bad do you want the and, hangover and those, to be? Those, those were kind of more like direct laser beams. They were. They were. I mean, as soon as they would push, as soon as they would squeeze the trigger the light would be on the target. Yeah. So there was no ducking or dodging that. They were very much more of a laser beam. Again, you just run you run into the scenario or the question of what's powering it. 
Mm-hmm. Magic. <laughs> Just kidding. Any sufficiently advanced technology is completely indiscernible from magic. Yes. <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke. <laughs> yeah, I send you back 2,000 years with, a, with an Apple phone on full charge, you're getting crucified. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> don't do it, folks. <laughs> Maybe even don't go past 1980. <laughs> no. 1980 wouldn't be too bad. Yeah, yeah, you could go to 1980. Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't have the internet, but that might not be too bad either. No Facebook. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the transporter. The transporter. Oh, yes, in Star Trek. The, uh, God, how how did they say that worked? So basically in the show, and I don't remember, I don't remember which episode or if it was kind of accumulated over multiple episodes, it was... Your molecular makeup, your atomic makeup was analyzed by the computer. And then what they did is they recreated that atomic makeup on its, on the, at the target where it was beaming you with whatever material was available in the surrounding environment. Amazing. So they would, so would it even still really be you? That was my question exactly was, are you the same person? Yeah. Because who you were on the ship was completely destroyed. Yeah. Technically, it, right? it mapped you digitally. It stored you in its data banks. Your particles went wherever particles go when they have nothing else to do. And then it projected that map to the target to the surface of the planet. And then it reconstructed you with whatever particles with the same material that it had available at that time. And then I guess it would transpose conscious, consciousness into the new entity. So every time, even when I was younger, I would see them transport somewhere, and I was like, is that a new person? Right, yeah. Did they just murder somebody and rebirth a clone? Yeah, and you think, you know, as the computer's, you know, downloading the uh, the, the particles, you know, that, that might be a painful process. You know, maybe they, you know, as soon as they get beamed, they should be like, ah! Maybe that's why you know? McCoy hated it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just like, God, I know what we're really doing here. <laughs> <laughs> you sadistic bastards. <laughs> So yeah, so that was that was the question. It's like, did they just kill Kirk and recreate him on the planet and transpose his consciousness? Consciousness, and again, that kind of gets into reality and consciousness and morality. And if you have the exact same consciousness in your clone, are you you? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and they kind of they kind of go through that a little bit in one of those Rick and Morty episodes we just saw too, uh, where he had the. Uh, Project Phoenix, you know, where he kept uh, dying, um, you know, him and Morty get into an an accident and Rick gets ejected out into space and he dies. Yeah. (laughs) Recreate him or the same. And then then he keeps getting recreated into these fascist uh, dystopias and he starts killing himself. He's like, nope. And then his consciousness keeps going to the next multiversal point. Yeah, it's weird. Have you seen Altered Carbon? No, I've only seen the first couple episodes. No, I, I haven't, we gotta yeah. watch that one. That's on par with The Expanse. Okay, okay, sweet. Yeah, that one, I mean, you get past the first couple and get your head around what's going on. Yeah. And it's awesome. And it's, again, it's kind of like um, the, the, the show Upload, which was a silly show. Um, Altered Carbon was more of a serious sci-fi show. Okay, sweet. And it was to the point in technology where we, you know, we had reached sufficient technological advancement to where we could upload consciousness. Hmm. So, and clones were possible. So there were like ones where they called them the meths and it wasn't meths from being meth heads. They, they called them that out of being Methuselahs. 
you know, basically mm. living forever, the biblical reference. I see. And these were people that were the super rich, and every 48 hours, they would have automatic backups. Oh, so their yeah. consciousness would be automatically backed up and do like a server in a secret location or a protected location. If anything ever happened to them, they had all these clones, and their consciousness and all of their neurological data would be downloaded in one of their clones. Oh, that's so cool. And they would just pop up and carry on. I feel and, like Altered Carbon came out before this Rick and Morty episode, too. They probably I can't remember it. when the first season of Altered Carbon came out. They did a second season, which uh, wasn't as good as the first one, but the first one was absolutely awesome. We got to watch it. Yeah, I got to check that out. Yeah, it's sufficiently dark. It's sufficiently violent. It's sufficiently sci-fi. There's a sufficient amount of gratuitous sex and violence and everything that's necessary in a good sci-fi movie. Thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> So to close out on Star Trek and, you know, after the transporter, just one thing that I found hilarious. I, I mentioned earlier, I'm a fan of Star Talk mm -hmm. and Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm a huge fan of Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he's one of the most famous physicists um, in America today. And he's done a lot to educate uh, the world in science. And he's also the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the Museum of Natural Science in New York, which is where, oh, shit. What's the name? Night of the Museum. Oh, where that takes place. That, yeah, that's where that takes place. Yeah, with Ben Stiller. Yes, he, <laughs> yes. And Neil deGrasse Tyson is the the director of the Hayden Planetarium. And oh, he, cool. He had an interesting one. He had the the actual the cast of DC Comics, not the cast, the um, the producers and the writers of DC Comics came out and visited him specifically one time because they wanted to try to make the movie a little bit more realistic in some areas. So. They were like, well, you know, if how far would Krypton need to be to be around this kind of star, Very you know, cool. a red star, and with him traveling here at near the speed of light for three years and blah, 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 blah. And, and, and he worked with the team. He's like, well, would you like us to find you the exact star? <laughs> and they did. That is so amazing. So, yeah, but he was a big, he was, he was born in... He was born like a week after or two weeks after NASA was created. Um, so I think it was 57. Neil was? So he'd have been around eight or nine years old when Star Trek launched. So right around that age when I got hooked on Star Trek, it was much later and it was on the reruns, but I was around um, nine years old. That's so cool. Eight so, years old, so I can't it, think. It's hitting into those early developmental... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It kind of, you know... It, it, triggers the geek part of the brain and got us interested and got us both interested in science. Obviously, he carried the science aspect much, much, much further than I did. Hey, still, but at that time, it got it into those core beliefs, you know? Yeah, but what I found interesting is when he he's told this story a couple times on his podcast is that when he was a kid, after watching the show, he was absolutely convinced that by the time he was an adult, we would have warp drives, colonizing other planets, uh, teleporters, phasers, uh -oh. and communicators. <laughs> the one thing that he cried bullshit on that we would never, ever have as a society were the doors that would automatically open as you walk close to them. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and that's the one thing we actually have. <laughs> so he's one of the smartest men in America as a boy, and he's like, oh, that." Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know in the original episode they had how they did that? Because that technology didn't exist in the late oh, 60s. Yeah. I just imagine they had a person. They had two. <laughs> two. So they had, they had, they had a, like a, they'd have like some dude on either side of the door behind the set 
And as the characters would walk close, they would cue them and they'd go and pull it open. And then, and there were countless bloopers where either one or both doors didn't get pulled in the right time. And the characters walked face first into the door. Oh, geez. It's like a stormtrooper head bump. <laughs> and how many times they do it on purpose just as a prank? <laughs> especially to, especially to William Shatner. Everybody on the set hated William Shatner. Oh shit. <laughs> so for those that don't know, and I I'm digress and we'll take a little five minute break before we get in the expanse. Oh, okay. But William Shatner was the most despised person on the set of Star Trek. No shit. Everyone hated William Shatner. That's so weird. He was pretentious. He didn't want to do so a lot of the a lot of the cast had to go in and do like uh, you know after the after the end of filming they would get called back by the editors to go in and you know cuz the editors would be looking at the film and they'd like no we need to redo this scene. He always refused to do that. Oh, I see. You know, I'm Bill Shatner. I don't need to do that shit. Oh, blah blah, wow. blah blah blah. So yeah, ev- the only one on the set that did not that got along with him was Leonard Nimoy. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And apparently Spock was the most of the beloved characters and got along with everybody on the set. Leonard Nimoy was like beloved. Yes, <laughs> that's sweet. Very much so. Everyone hated William Shatner. Wow. I saw <laughs> a yin and yang. I saw a. I think it was. I don't know. It was ten, fifteen years ago. William Shatner did a. Uh, it was one of his birthdays, and they did a they did a roast. You know, they had people come up that knew him that would sit up on stage and roast him. Yeah. And they invited George Takai. Oh, wow, yeah. So Mr. Sulu. Yeah. And Mr. Sulu was standing there, and he was going through it. If you, this one's available on YouTube also. It's probably heavily bleeped out, but it's worth looking at. You could still feel the venom 35, 40 years later. Whoa. From Sulu. Whoa. And, you know, he... <laughs> And I think it was something along the lines of at the end, and he was like, and so the only thing I have to say to you, Bill, is fuck you. And, and oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> something along those lines. And, and William Shatner, to his credit, you know, in his later years, has become much more amenable and much more likable person. But when, yeah. he, was, when he was younger... He was not very well liked. I see. Yeah, yeah. Because my image of him now is a lot more liked. But I will tell you what I do like about the young William Shatner. So yes, he was a pretentious, narcissistic prick in in the '60s and probably in the '70s and maybe even going into the '80s when he was doing T.J. Hooker as the cop and and blah blah blah. So the first interracial kiss on television was between Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura. That is so cool. Yeah. When they kissed on the set, and I don't remember which episode it was, but when they kissed and then it went to editing later, they the the editors and the producers said, we can't have that. We'll get too much flash or kickback or too much heat from the audience. They don't want to see a white man kissing a black woman and blah, blah, blah. You know, this is the 60s. So they said, we need to get uh, William Shatner in, uh, what was her name, Michelle? I can't remember now. But they, sure. we need... We need to get him back on a set and redo that film and not have him kiss, but, you know, maybe hug Mm, mm -hmm. or something like that. William Shatner knew back at that time that they only had so much time to do the editorial process. They were on a very strict, unyielding schedule for getting the final cut out to the movie studio so that they could publish it in time for live or for television. Yeah. And he knew they only had a couple hours in order to get this scene right, Mm -hmm. right in air quotations. Yeah. Um, so that it would be acceptable to the audience. He also understood the ramifications of why they needed to get it, air quotations, right Mm -hmm. for the audience. So for the next two hours, 
he intentionally botched the scene. That's awesome. <laughs> and he continued to botch it. And they even at one point, I guess they addressed it and they were like, Bill, we know what you're doing. Stop it. Stop fucking around. We need to get this done. And he'd be like, okay, okay, I'm sorry. And he would turn around and fuck up the next scene. That's awesome. And he did it. And it finally got to the point where they were like, cut, just wrap what we got and send it. And it became the first interracial kiss on television. Wow, that's so cool. So, yeah. right, it was worth worth him being a little bit of a prick, huh? <laughs> yeah, so it was. It, he was like, F you, I did what I did. She's a beautiful woman, and I don't disagree with if the people, you know, if their sensitivities don't tolerate two people, you know, of different races kissing on television. Yeah, screw them. Screw them. <laughs> so, yeah, so good for him. And she actually, at one point, Lieutenant Uhura, uh, Lieutenant Uhura, um, she despised William Shatner so much before that she even gave him kudos for that because she knew that she knew she called on after a while what he was doing and yeah. it, it gained her a little bit of respect for him. But she was another one of the cast that that didn't Michelle Nichols, I think is her name, hmm. that didn't that didn't like uh, William Shatner. She despised him to the point to where she was going to quit. Wow. You know, I think it, I don't know if it was a third of the way or a quarter of the way or halfway through the first season, but she was going to quit because she couldn't she couldn't deal with him. Mm hmm. She got a call from Martin Luther King. Oh. <laughs> and he said, you have no idea what kind of impact you're having on young African-American women in society. Oh, sure. We need you to fight the battle that we're all fighting out here, but fight it on your end and stick through it. Because... That's amazing. And she did. Yeah. And then it was after that, it was after that point when Kirk and William Shatner intentionally botched the scenes so that it forced the first interracial kiss to appear on television. That's so cool. So it was basically to all you racist fuckers out there. Yeah. Double. Yeah. You're on the wrong side of history. What did Spock say? <laughs> double dumbass on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that's it. So, I mean, maybe, maybe we take like a five minute break and then come back and um, the expanse isn't, uh, the expanse is the most realistic of the sci-fi movies we're going to cover. Yeah. And we, we both go through that and then we'll call it a wrap. Yeah. Sounds good. I got to go tinkle. So yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. No interracial kiss before we go. So, but. Okay. But, but, <laughs> all right. Hold on. So on to the expanse. The expanse. Yeah. So I think the expanse is probably, I mean, just as far as pure tv shows i mean i put it up there with what i'm watching now with the boys and witcher and even going back to game of thrones it's right up there yeah yeah the expanse is up there for me as well um not only is the story really compelling but just the the thoughtfulness behind the space travel and and just the physics is it, it's like on par with like what star trek was wanting to achieve and yeah five, five decades ago yeah yeah but it's kind of like an amalgamation of both star trek and star wars you know because it's got the drama and you know the the characters you know have have a lot of depth and you know are really interesting but you know when when they travel through space like how they have to do the the turn and burn thing so because kind of the expanse is a little bit of a newer show folks just to let you know spoiler alert you know, we're going to be talking about some stuff that may or may not spoil things for you <laughs> yeah i'll try not to there's i i was very conscious of that when or conscientious of that when i was putting together my show notes oh tonight. cool oh cool because i want to recommend it to people if you if you haven't seen the expanse as with any episode or with any new show, give it a, you know the first two episodes a try. I, that one grabbed me on the both me and uh, Tina and I on the first episode, but it's available on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. 
So what was interesting about that show is, so Naren Shankar is the, the showrunner, one of the co-showrunners, and he has a PhD in applied physics and electrical engineering. Awesome. So, and he, he did feel that it was very important to incorporate real, real world physics yeah. into, the, into the show dynamics to make it as appealing as possible to, to, to the more discerning watchers. Oh, sure. And even me as like a layman, you can tell right off the bat like that, whoa, this is not like anything I've seen before. But once you see it, it's like this makes an insane amount of sense. Yeah, because there's movies that I've watched that could have been entertaining, and I am quite capable of suspending disbelief in order to enjoy a movie. Yeah. But there's some movies that take it to such an extreme that you can't suspend disbelief anymore. Yeah. It, it kind of breaks that... The fourth wall. Yeah, it breaks the fourth wall, or it breaks that bond of some kind of trust that the writers have with the audience. Yeah. Because they just, uh, you know, they, it gets to the point where it's insulting the intelligence. Right. So, you know, Star Wars doesn't reach that point. It's such an enjoyable movie. You're able to look past all that shit and just say, oh, it's in the future, or not in the future. It's actually all, you know, <laughs> way in the past, far, far away. They knew things we didn't. I'm going to enjoy the show. Yeah. But I have watched movies where it's like, okay, I'm halfway through it. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but, you know, he, he didn't have, he left things out of the show like, hyperdrives and warp drives and transporters and tractor beams and deflector shields and the subspace communication where you could have intergalactic communications real time and things. And, and he really focused more on what he would call real world sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It, I, that's true. Cause yes, yeah, so their communications were pretty on par too, where it would take X amount of time for a signal to get from one point of the galaxy to another and, and they accounted for that. The, the characters are aware of it, like, in their time. Yeah, the, the, the plot of the story is yeah. revolves around that kind of physics. It the, does, They have yeah. to take that into account when planning missions and, you know, the, the time it takes for something to travel at the speed of light at yeah. the amount of distance. Yeah, and some of the really tight moments, you know, are dependent on that because they'll either, you know, ma- they'll either make their, um, their goal or, or they'll miss it or, you know, whatever, and it's based off of real calculations mm-hmm. and that's super cool. But one of the you one of the things I mentioned that was in the list for Star Wars was the flight dynamics. Uh, and yeah. you started to talk about that with the flip and burn. Yeah. And they really got the flight dynamics correct in the expanse. So when you see these ships doing dogfighting, it's not what you would expect from, you know, World War II P51 flying, you know, with a Messerschmitt. They have thrusters on the ships that have to constantly be igniting in certain directions to rotate things around. And if they want to decelerate, the only way that they can do that is to actually flip the ship 180 degrees and then fire the thrusters in the op- opposite direction to do the flip and burn yeah. in order to de- decelerate. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool, too, because there's even scenarios that the characters in The Expanse you know, are talking about that are just non-go-to to scenarios because they they know that they it, it's physically impossible to do. Yes. Which is cool, yeah, because they'll, they'll bring it up and be like, oh, you know, could we do this? And the idea gets shut down. But, it, yeah, I, I actually, now that I said it, I don't want to go into spoiler town, so I, I won't go any further. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering why you paused there for a second. Yeah. Now I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you almost said something you should. Now, there's, yeah. I'm going to say some things in here, but I hope it's not huge spoilers. So one thing I did not mention in either Star Wars or Star Trek, because it was in, it was implicit in the, in, in the writing, 
was artificial gravity. Ah, yes. So on the Enterprise, on the Battle Stars, on in the Star the, Wars, yeah, yeah. the sta- space cruisers, on you know there, there was always gravity. Yeah, everybody could just walk around freely on the ship, like like how you walk around on Earth. Even on the smaller ships, on the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. You know, they walked around, they would sit down, they, there was artificial gravity. Yeah, and same with little transporters in Star Trek. Yeah, on the, on, the, on the space shuttle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they would be walking around the shuttle, which is just this little bitty dinky shed of a spaceship. And, yeah. But it never got into how that gravity was generated. It just presumed that the audience would take for granted that it was 300 years in the future and we knew how to do that. Yeah, but not this time, not in Expanse. No, not in the Expanse at all. It was very much unlike Star Wars and Star Trek. Most of the ships that I'm aware of didn't have artificial gravity generators. No. Yeah, what they used instead were um, they, they would either use spin to, to create a, a gravity on some of the bigger ships or, or they'd have like those boots, the, the mag boots for when they couldn't do that. Yeah, and you mentioned the first one and that was, that was the only exception that I knew of was on the Naboo. Mm-hmm. The the commandeered Mormon spaceship. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you're Mormon, <laughs> well, I won't go there. But so that one, the ship. I think they explained in the show that it was like one and a half kilometers long. So mm-hmm. it was a massive ship, and and the intent of the ship was, and again, it's not that much of a spoiler. There was a large group of Mormons on Earth that were trying to travel. 120, it was was going to take them, I don't know the distance, it was going to take them 120 years to get there to colonize a complete Mormon-dominated planet. Yeah. And so the Naboo was, it was basically one and a half kilometers long, had an incredible diameter, and the 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 housing and the fields, the art of, the grass that they had grown, were all on the inner surface of this large tube so if you were standing in there you could look up and kind of like interstellar the, at the very end of interstellar they had a similar ship mm-hmm. and this would rotate at a certain rate and anybody that was on that surface would feel gravity yeah and they could you know depending upon the the, the diameter and the the speed or the velocity of the rotation you could generate a 1g comparable to earth gravity so that they they did get that but to your to your point yeah all the other ships required mag boots mm-hmm and it was interesting because there were a lot of points during the show where you would see crew walking down a corridor yeah. in their mag boots, and somebody would pass them, but they would be on, walking on the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there'd be one or two walking on the ceiling in the other direction. So, you know, to, it was, it's all relative. So to, you know, one set, they were on the floor, to the others, and, the, and, they were, and the other people were on the ceiling, and vice versa for, you know, for the other pair yeah. that were They'd walking. even have things, too, where, like, you know, they're be a mechanic you know working on some part of the ship and they have all their tools out and then like something would happen that would jostle the ship and all the tools would just go flying and it would cause major havoc yeah (laughs) sorry i had taken a glass drink of wine on that one yes and that was there was the one episode where he forgot to secure the locker or he didn't secure the locker all the way yeah and one of the one of the pieces that was flying around was the drill with like the 12 inch bit Yes. On and they were all ducking and dodging. Every time the ship, again, every time the ship would maneuver, it would have to kick a thruster in a certain direction, which would send everything flying in an unexpected direction. And everybody was ducking and dodging. Yeah. 
So, but yeah, gra- gravity was also created during acceleration. And this was clearly depicted in the show on many occasions where the ship was at a full stop and everything was floating around. And then they would accelerate to go from point A to point B. And, and gravity, gravity would resume in the ship or it would all fly back. And that is one way to create gravity. So if we, if, so if we accelerate at a rate of 9.8, 9.81 meters per second squared. That's and, rough. And we continually accelerate at that rate. Mm-hmm. That's equivalent to 1G. Uh, yes, but you have to continue to accelerate. You can't just start there and then... And then stop, because yeah. then you would be moving at a certain speed, but you would be in zero G again. Yeah. So, But if you're continually accelerating at that rate, then uh, 9.81 meters per second squared, then you will continuously feel 1G of gravity, and you could walk on, you know, if the back surface of the ship is the work areas or whatever, you would just feel 1G. It'd be like standing on Earth. Mm-hmm. But to your point, yes, the minute you stopped... Yeah, shit would go floating around again. And they show that in the expanse. <laughs> they do. They 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 do. And it, and when they accelerate it faster than one G or nine point eight one meters, then they start a, a experiencing excessive G forces, and you see that in the expanse. Yeah. They also showed to that point. Again, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but they showed the effects of besides the rapid acceleration of the rapid deceleration. Yes. There was there was one scene where the dude was in. Um, that, like a racer. The racer. I thought you were going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, and he was doing slingshots around planets to build up speed and going faster and faster. And and then when he entered the ring, the ship came to a complete stop. Yeah, and he was just totally atomized. He was completely atomized. <laughs> it was just, yeah, blood and everything. Just He just basically exploded. Yeah. <laughs> he was in a seatbelt. He was in a harness. Yeah. So, you know, but everything just kind of like flowed through the harness and just completely, yeah, because the ship stopped, but everything else was continuing to go at, you know, whatever, 100,000 miles an hour or whatever, however fast it was going. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) But I also like the flip and burn because, you know, they would continually accelerate at, at that rate to have the gravity. But, you know, if you were traveling from point A to point B and say it was one light year, just to have a nice even number. Yeah. Or a, a nice whole number, mm-hmm. you know, you would accelerate at one g, you know, nine point eight one meters per second squared for the first six months. But then, right at the six month point, you would have to do a flip and then continually decelerate at the equivalent force to fill one g for the next six months. And then, by the time the ship reached the target, you would come to a complete standstill. That's amazing. And they did show they that was also depicted in the show. Yeah. Yeah, and they also didn't use uh, you know laser guns or anything like that. It was real bullets for you know for their you know ammunitions um, during those particular scenes. They really do cover a lot of stuff. Even even botany in space, you know, mm-hmm. they, they have that too. Yeah, as art, as not artificial as biological air generators, oxygen generators, and yeah, yeah, such a cool program. Yeah, one thing I wanted to bring up for for the audience, and I. I kind of let it slip out yesterday when you and I were talking because it was a, it was this little annoying thing I couldn't figure out in my own head. And Chris and I, we'd said last year we were sitting around looking at the telescope and I had said one of the things that bothered me is, you know, say we traveled to a star that was 10 light years away and we traveled at half the speed of light, you know, would that take us 20 years relative to the duration of the people remaining on earth or 20 years relative to the people on the ship? Because as you, you accelerate, time for you, time is relative. 
So time will, for you will flow slower than for the people that remain on Earth. The faster you go. Yeah. The faster you go, the, the slower time flows for you. I found out the answer just by spending some time and doing research. And yeah, so the, the example that I was talking about yesterday is Alpha Centauri. Mm-hmm. So Alpha Centauri is 4.37 light years away. If we had, say, I, I know it's physically impossible, but say we started off on Earth and immediately accelerated to the speed of light headed towards Alpha Centauri. So to the people on Earth, if they could watch, if they could, uh, if they could watch us during the flight, it would take us four, they would take us 4.37 years to reach Alpha Centauri. From their perspective. From the perspective of the people on Earth. If you and I were on the ship, that would only be 10 weeks. Yeah, it's incredible. It's, it's mind-blowing. Weird, weird, weird. And then if we turn around and came back at the same rate, when we arrived at Earth, you and I would have aged by about 20 weeks, so five months. But the people on Earth would have aged nearly nine years. Wow. And it, it, if we picked a further object like Betelgeuse, um, Betelgeuse, the star, is 640 light years from Earth. So for the people on Earth... It would take us 640 years to reach there, but for you and I, it'd be 28 years. We could do it in our lifetime. Yeah. Wow. But then you couldn't come back because everybody you would know would... No, because if we came back, then we'd be 56 years older than when we left, but everybody, it would, 1,280 years would have passed on Earth. Yeah. That's so crazy. Yeah, and they touch on that in Inter- Interstellar, you know, which we mm-hmm. have talked about outside of, you know, being on the podcast a little bit, Doug and I, but... Um, you know, talk about it here. That that's a great example of that time dilation that happens. Yeah, because in Interstellar, it was we talked as we discussed yesterday. It's a little bit different. It, it wasn't due to velocity. It was due to the mass of the black hole that they were near. Yeah, and that's so wow. It's another way that influences time is mass. It does, and it's E equals mc squared. So as you accelerate closer to the speed of light, your mass grows closer to infinity. So at the speed of light, your mass is basically infinite and you takes an infinite amount of energy to propel you at the speed of light, which is impossible, which is why nothing can travel faster than the speed of light through the universe. But if you're near a black hole, which has an extensive mass, then basically you're doing the same thing. You're, you know, you're dilating time because of the mass. That's so incredible. And so weird. <laughs> it's hard to get your head around. Mm-hmm. But it's been proven, and, and we, we know that it's true because we have to continuous, continuously synchronize clocks um, between Earth and satellites that are moving at 17,000 miles per hour um, around Earth. Um, the reason that you know, the, the clock shift is because the satellite in space is moving a lot faster. Time moves a little bit slower for it, so they have to synchronize ever so often in order so our GPS systems oh, yeah. maintain synchrony. Yeah, got to have that precision. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Perfect or nothing, pass or fail. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about interspace communication, and that was true because there was in uh, there was one up one episode. I think I think it was Earth launched uh, missiles at it was either at Mars, but I think it was it was the it was a Martian moon. I think it was Phobos. And when Phobos was hit, it took twenty five minutes for the people on Earth to realize that that took place. And they, yeah. there were a lot of different instances in the show where the delay in communication was part of the plot line. Yeah, back on the expanse is what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Injuries in space. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they touch on that as well. <laughs> because with, that, with the absence of gravity, bleeding out and internal bleeding is a whole different story. Yeah, blood, you know, blood isn't cooperative if there's... 
if there's no gravity, blood just pulls up in areas of the body where you don't want it pooling. Yeah. And there was, and I don't remember the episode, but one of the, you know, don't want to give too much away, but one of the characters was injured. They were on the Naboo and the, the device that caused the artificial gravity that caused the whole of the Naboo to rotate had been damaged. And they were trying to get that fixed so that they could get this person into a 1G environment That's in right. order to save their life because they were going to die in a 0G environment. Yeah. Did they make it? Did they not? I don't know. You guys got to watch the show. You got to figure it out. <laughs> that was really all that I touched on in The Expanse because you know they got so much of it right. Yeah. That yeah. Was... Didn't really detect anything that came on the radar like oh that's bs well there was one thing that was bs which is the same as in any show we talked about earlier which was sound in space mm, mm-hmm. but i kind of took the same approach that that was from the perspective of somebody in a ship and not necessarily of a camera floating around in space filming everything oh uh, yeah i'll have to go back and rewatch it because i feel like there were moments there were that were quiet in space but yeah but then there are um you know times where yeah i don't know uh, hmm yeah, there were, no, there were times where it did both. And then there were sounds like where they would do the flip and burn where you'd hear the thrusters. And That's true. Yeah, you, you would hear the thrusters sometimes. That, I just presumed it was from the perspective of whoever was in the ship. Yeah, yeah, same. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was it for the notes. I did have a question, though. Yeah, what's up? So this is from an Army buddy of mine. Yeah. So Roger Sinclair. Okay, Roger. Yeah, and he asked... Why do aliens, alternative life forms, UFOs, etc., become hot topics when the government feels we need distractions from other more real and sinister things happening to us right here at home? It's been happening since the 50s. It's been happening since the 50s when something important comes up in our real world that all of a sudden information about aliens and stuff like that starts propagating. Yeah, sci-fi becomes a real big hit in and culture. Why is that? Huh. Um, so, I mean, is this a is this a suggestive question that is, you know, trying to point at something like, you know, maybe we should be paying attention more to our our real world problems instead of focusing on existential threats or yeah. um i'm not sure i don't have the answer to that knowing my army buddies and i love them all if yeah. you're listening to this which i doubt they are i love you guys but it's probably you know some kind of government related conspiracy theory that somebody thought up and yeah that every time the government is trying to fuck us over a big sci-fi hit comes out and everybody's like ooh ah <laughs> I mean, and no longer paying attention to what the government's doing, and we become vulnerable to, you know, being the fuckies instead of <laughs> the fuckers. So. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, maybe it's all happening is is what I think of sometimes. So we're, here's my like, here's my mental regurgitations on the answer. Yeah, yeah, because I don't have anything that's really necessarily popping up for me right now. So I had to think about this on how to answer it. I had a uh, initial impulse answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't good enough because it wasn't evidenced. I didn't have enough supporting information to go back and say. So I, I spent far too much time <laughs> on this question. In the end, there's, there's no real correlation between an increase in science fiction releases or popularity and civil unrest. Um, one of the things that we can do is just simply go back and look at some of the most popular science fiction movies of all time. Uh, which were released at times when there weren't significant sinister things happening to us right here at home. Mm-hmm. So Blade Runner, 1982. 
Okay. Nothing really going on at the time. Star Wars Episode Five, 1980. You know, the Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, again, Aliens in 86. Star Wars Episode Four, 1977. Alien, 1979. Matrix, 1999. Robocop, 1987. So some of the most popular alien, science fictiony, UFO type of movies that came out when it really was nothing that needed to be distracted from. So, and there's quite a few others on the list. I mean, there's a buttload of movies on the list that all occurred in, I guess we should say, rather benign years of society. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's just simply from the fact that we make a lot of sci-fi movies, and the and the government is always doing sinister shit that they're bound and determined to coincide with each other. Yeah, maybe. We could actually say the same thing about dramas or mafia movies. Godfather came out in 1972. Nixon was in deep shit. Vietnam was a complete mess. Uh, Operation Linebacker was, was going on. Protests were going on around the United States. Basically, everything over in Southeast Asia was going to hell in a handbasket. Now comes Godfather. It's not a sci-fi movie. There, there have been plenty of movies like that that have come out in times when there were civil unrest or things that were possibly nefarious that could have been going on. The, the other thing, I think, probably one of the simplest proofs or the simplest pieces of evidence to support my claim is that it takes, on average, around two and a half years for a movie to go from being written to being produced to being released. Mm-hmm. And that would mean that the movie studio, in cahoots with the government would need to have some kind of crystal ball to where they could see two and a half years in the future and understand what kind of nefarious, sinister action the government would be undergoing that would require a movie to distract people from that or a book or something. Yeah. And then rush to the drawing board in order to have it completed in time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not in the government. I I don't know. Maybe it's just like a kind of let it be written, let it be done. It's like some premeditative thing. If, if you want to believe it's like some whole huge... Con- See, it's, it's a really paranoid thought, you know, right? That the world is against you, that the government is trying to do sinister things. That, that's paranoia. But that's like kind of like... We'll classify that as like the dark side. But then there's another concept that a lot of people don't really... aren't really aware about. Pronoia. Mm. You paranoia and pronoia and if there's like a giant conspiracy against you you know and that's and that's something that's you know to be believed you could also argue that there's a giant conspiracy out there that's there to help you too and maybe that's part of the the whole information and exchange where you know you have hollywood and the media and the government somehow orchestrated perfectly then where they're working together and you know it's to destroy you or it's to help you you know whatever that's that's kind of a matter of perspective and can that even be proven um i i don't know uh i like to think about this um it's fun <laughs> it's but fun we, to- <laughs> we talked about this in conspiracy theories in the introduction and introduction episode where we want to do an, um, an, an episode dedicated to conspiracy theories or more than likely more than one episode. Oh, sure. Yeah. And they're fun to think about. Yeah, they are. I mean, the imagination is such an awesome place because for, for me, like that's the imagination is like the seat of God for me. Hmm. You know, I mean, all things are possible there. 
whether they're physically possible or not, you know, that it, it, I'm an artist. So, you know, I love thinking about this kind of stuff because it can, you know, either make better art or, you know, maybe I'll write a script for a movie someday or something like that. And, you know, everybody can be like, see, you know, this guy's trying to fuck us over or he's trying to help us or, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you can always you can always pick two events, two random completely disconnected events and find a pattern that associate the two. Our brains are designed to do that, right? Our, our <laughs> brains are nothing more than pattern thing or pattern creating devices. Yeah, that's that's what they're good at. And a lot of times they get the patterns wrong. Yeah, but that's they they absorb pieces of information. Our brain wants to conserve energy, and it tries to create a pattern and posit an outcome. Yeah, and there's a lot of people out there that you know they're thinking about these things, and you know, uh, um, your friend, you know, here that that wrote the question, uh, you know, too. I mean, clearly, you know, likes likes thinking and stuff. And if you find a connection, you know, that's really cool. You can hold on to that. And I say, look for more possibilities, you know, and just keep looking, try and break that mold. Yeah. Know? And don't reject all other possibilities because there is one possibility that it could be that you feel more strongly about emotionally. Sure. Than oh, others. Especially, yeah, we were kind of talking about that in another podcast. You have like subjective an versus objective thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And when you have like an emotional reaction to something, whether it's outwardly emotional or you just are feeling it on the inside, you know, that can be a cue to relate the information. Gosh, I don't know if I can really even articulate this into words. Uh, but like, like in myself, like, you know, if, if some, if, if I'm watching a movie or I see something on the news or if somebody says something to me that kind of triggers me in a way where I'm like, whoa, you know, it's weird or that fits into this conspiracy in my head, recognizing that that may be an irrational thought is something that's a healthy practice to have because um well it avoids you going down the road of confirmation bias where you you know readily accept input that supports your belief but you reject input that contradicts your belief yeah yeah well i, I think about you know that story you shared on one of our last episodes you know how these how there was like somebody who thought that they were saving kids from some pedophile ring and they went into a pizza hut and, and started killed shooting everybody. people. They, and, they and actually like, didn't kill. I'm glad you mentioned that because they didn't kill anybody. They did injure people. Yeah. And then at the end, yeah, they were in awe and amazement when they realized that the place didn't even have a cellar. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that guy, that person's reality, you know, was totally, totally shaken there. And they were operating under this system that they were right, you know, and they were convinced all the way to the point to where they were willing to use lethal force to, to, to prove their point. And it wasn't grounded in anyone else's reality, but, but their, but their own, own singular reality. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I don't, I don't know. It's, it, I don't know. <laughs> I, w I wish I did, but I don't. But just a couple things to kind of, again, that was that I evidenced was one of the top movies, sci-fi movies of all time was Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And that came out in 1968. Yeah. In 1968, it was launched um, April, May of 1968. I can't remember now. I wasn't even born yet. Um, but it came out in 1968 was a horrible year. In, in the United States. So there was a lot of things going on in Southeast Asia. The civil unrest was at an all-time high. The Civil Rights Act of 1968 was trying to be passed. 
You know, I said Vietnam was a complete shit show. The Tet Offensive was in January of that year. Yeah, yeah, it was January of 68. Um, so 68 was a complete mess. And then Space Odyssey comes out, and everybody's like, ooh, ah, look oh, at this movie, yeah, and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And, you know, so that kind of coincides with what Roger was saying here. Is like, ah, look at that. There's a lot of coincidence there. They started that three years earlier. You know, that started right. in 1965. Yeah. And it took a long time to put that together. The reason they launched it in 1968 is because it was done, and they didn't want to sit on it anymore. They wanted to start generating revenue to offset the cost that they had just spent over the previous three years. And the only way to do that was to launch the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there was a, there's a saying in marketing, um, which is my primary field, that, you know, at some point you got to shoot the engineer and launch the product. Yeah, and and that was and, and I deal at. with that with my art too when I'm creating stuff. You know, I have every intention of wanting to spend all the time in the world getting something perfect, but I've got deadlines too, getting the shows, and sometimes you just got to let it go and move on to the next one, and and it lands when it lands, and the timing could be coincidence, it could be synchronistic, uh, you know? Yeah, but when it comes to Hollywood, they, they're not going to sit on something for a year that's ready to be launched. They want the money. Yeah, yeah. They want the revenue. They want it to hit the theaters. I mean, the only, the only exception to that that, it's in, that I know of in my lifetime is, you know, 2020 and COVID. Yeah, and I wouldn't give some. Sorry, guys, but I wouldn't give so much credit to the government either. They're you not know? that like, smart. Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> and there's too many people. I mean, by fact, you know, a lot of conspiracy theories by default are dysfunctional because there's. It would require too many people to be involved. Yeah, yeah. If anything, if you know, you want to think conspiracy theories, don't look at the government. Look more to like you know, individuals. I mean, easy targets like Jeff Bezos, you know, and yeah. billionaires and you know stuff like that, which. You know, I know I've heard all kinds of weird rumors about Bill Gates, too, and it's like, that poor guy. You know, he's just a successful dude, but it's... But if one person knows a secret, if one person knows a secret, I can probably give you a rough calculation or a percentage on the the probability of that secret coming out just based on the integrity of that person. Yeah. If two people know that secret, it exponentially decreases. Oh, absolutely. And if 10 people know that secret, it exponentially decreases even further. When you start talking about the government, you're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of people that would need to be involved in something like this. Yes. And yeah. for one person not to come out and, you know, it's, I mean, we're, there, I mean, there's other, I mean, so in 2009, you know, I know this because, um, yeah, I was living in Europe at the time and, you know, there was the global recession that happened that was triggered in America for various reasons. I mean, I don't want to get into the causes of the recession, but everything was going into a, you know, 1999, 2000 recessions, shit show kind of environment. Mm-hmm. And then Avatar comes out. Yes. And that's, that's another point that would you know, kind of you know, lend credence to Roger's implication of sci-fi, fantasy type of things coming out at a time when things need, you know, when people need um, distractions. Yeah. And but, sometimes distractions are a healthy thing, you know, because they can relieve some of the tension, you know, too. We need that. Yeah. But again, with Avatar, James Cameron started that project in 2005. Mm-hmm. And they spent a lot of money on that. And it was ready to release in 2009. They didn't really care what the government was doing at the time. They wanted revenue. Yeah. So sci-fi has become one of the more popular genre films, um, especially, you know, over the last 30 years as, as technology and special effects uh, have, have improved. And then just think about what's come out in the last 20 years. I mean, 
There's been 22 Avenger movies. Yeah. Since when did Iron Man come out? 2004, 2006. Wow, has it been that long? Yeah, that's amazing. So, I mean, 22 Avengers movies. You look at the, you know, you had the Batman trilogy, and then you've had the DC movies to come after that. You know, there's been what five or six new. So there was the three new star. There was the new Star Wars trilogy. Plus there was Solo, The Force Awakens. There was something, maybe something else. So there's been, you know, a lot of, you know, during that period of time, you know, since say 2000 to today, yeah, there's been a lot of, so, what did he call it, sinister shit that's yeah. been going on with the government. It doesn't necessarily correlate it to Hollywood and the movie industry or writers or, you know, the news giving, you know, entirely too much time allocation or spots to, you know, some of these movies. I mean, the, the reason they do it and the reason they keep making the movies is because people like you and I pay for them. Yeah, exactly. They, it, that's, that's where the money's at. That's where the ratings are. So, Yeah, it, it has no connection, has zero connection to what the government is doing because, one, it takes too long to, to develop, to write, develop, produce, and, and launch these movies, and nobody can predict the future. So, I mean, that's one. The other is we are quite capable, you and I, of looking for distractions when shit goes wrong in the government. I mean, things go up, alcohol consumption, ice cream consumption, fast food consumption all increase mm -hmm. um, when bad things are happening or when the government's doing sinister and nefarious shit or whatever. It's, it's you know, comfort food or comfort drink or... Sure. Well, and, you know, I even kind of have a thing too, like being more on the pronoid, you know, side of things... You know, sometimes I, I believe that, you know, governments and individuals and groups that have access to massive amounts of resources, you know, most of the resources, you know, I could see that I, I could see there being j just kind of like yin and yang. You know, there's probably forces out there that are looking to be benevolent and then the forces out there that are naturally malevolent, you know, and most of the normal people, you know, fall somewhere in the gray area in between, you know, but like there, there's been initiatives out there, you know, to, to lower our carbon footprint, you know, and so, so how, how does we as a people, how does a government achieve that, you know, especially if like you live in a democracy where everybody has a voice, but if science is saying that like, hey, we got to get this carbon thing under control, they write some laws to do that, you know, but it might not necessarily like look like that's what it is. But as long as it shepherds the sheep into the corral, it's working, right? I mean, does that make sense? Like sometimes things might need to happen too in order for the greater good to continue on. I don't know. It's I'm allergic to the phrase the greater good. Okay, the greater good. Yeah, because yeah. usually I find in my study of history that the greater good is a euphemism for what's greater for me, but maybe not so much for you. Sure, true. Yeah. yeah. So it's that, that's, well, and, and also, too, I mean, I, I think of, you know, the road to hell is paved in good intentions as well. Yeah, um, you there know, is so no like, hell. Yeah. Uh, the, or I, I should say the road to suffering. <laughs> yeah. Um. Hell is Gary, Indiana. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know, man. Tucson, Arizona was pretty fun. Tucson, Arizona was pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I would just, uh, so to answer your question, Roger, and to summarize, correlation does not equal causation. And there's, if you want to correlate things in life, there are millions 
of things out there that you could go and say, well, every time this happens, I notice that happens over there. Well, just because that happens, correlation doesn't equal causation. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, on with that, I, as much as a big fan as I am of find the common denominator, I'm also a really big fan of find more possibilities, too. Yeah, and, and, and apply Occam's razor. If you don't know Occam's razor, I won't go into it. You can look it up. Um, but, you know, the simplest solution is most obviously the, 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 is the most obvious likely solution. And Occam's razor proves true over and over and over again. So do we release a lot of sci-fi films at times of, of strife or when the government is, you know, undergoing nefarious projects? Or do we release sci-fi films because people like you and I pay $15 a ticket and they make six hundred million at the box office. I would try to you know, lean towards the latter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. I love one of the lines from this movie. Um, minor was it Minority Report? Yeah, I think so. no, no. It was another no, sci-fi it was, movie. No, it wasn't Minority Report. It was another um, Tom Cruise movie. It was uh, Vanilla Sky. His dad had a book that what's the answer to ninety nine point nine percent of all questions? Money. Yeah, <laughs> and that that is very likely the truth. So yeah, I would look less at the government and look more inward at ourselves. And it's totally yeah. I'm not saying to trust the government either. Don't get me wrong there. I'm not an anarchist, but don't you know? There's we have to have as we've you know we told James multiple times in the in the two God episodes. You have to have a healthy level of skepticism in all things in life. Oh yes. Otherwise, yeah. you become a puppet. Yeah. So, you know, keep pointing out these oddities and maybe you'll hit on one. I don't think it is directly related to aliens and UFOs and the, you know, the, the sinister activities of our government. I do appreciate the question, though, because it's got my mind, you know, like all over the place, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> so, so thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Roger. I love you, brother. Before we close, I wanted to give credit to the sources that I used for a lot of my notes. First and foremost was NASA.com. I do go to their website quite often. I'm always interested in what, you know, what NASA is doing and especially, you know, just some of the, some of the projects and pictures and, you know, NASA gives us the vision of what the future could be and where we could go. So it's, it's a great website. Um, Forbes.com, uh, the European Journal of Physics, Starship, Starships, Starships.com. <laughs> Thank you, Brad. I, I, I went through an article that he wrote, and he just cited at the bottom, Brad. No, no surname, no last name. So, But thank you. Science.org. Um, of course, Wikipedia is almost involved in everything. And yes, I know. Don't write in and tell me. Um, you know, people, anybody can edit Wikipedia. You know, Wikipedia is just one of many sources of source documentation that I use. I always weigh it against um, other sites. And then the most interesting one, which I, I you know, highly recommend to anybody who struggled with the, the same time dilation questions that I have on you know, traveling to far objects at high speeds and you know, the time dilation, is EMC squared explained. And that's actually emc2-explained.com. They have a calculator there. You can you know, enter various percentages of the speed of light, how far you want to travel, and it'll give you the relative time for, you know, how much time would have passed for you and during your travels and how much time would have passed or elapsed for the people back home. It's, an, it's so an awesome cool. website. Wow. Yeah. That's it. That's my notes. Cool. That was fun. I enjoy. I, yeah. Well, I enjoy anytime we talk sci-fi. Yeah, man. <laughs> so 
All right. Thank you for listening to this episode. Um, and, you know, do you have any closing comments? Keep on rocking in the free world. Keep on rocking in the free world. All right. I love you, man. Love you, Doug. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Irrational Discourse Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us an email at debate at irrationaldiscourse.com, or you can contact us directly through our website at www.irrationaldiscourse.com. Please include your name and location if you'd like a shout out for your contribution. We only ask for and strive to give in return a little love, acceptance, and mutual respect.